Welcome to Game Night. This is Geek Gab's RPG special show. I'm your host, Doranal. Uh, tonight with me, I've got uh, James Grimm Desbro, uh, veteran of the gaming industry. He's been writing for, what would you say, about 17 years? Say hi, everybody. Hi, everybody. Uh, getting on for, for 20 part-time, about fifth, uh, 15 full-time. That is a lot of writing. Uh, before we talk about that, I want to introduce uh, Daddy Warpig, uh, my venerable co-host, uh, who's also fond of writing many RPGs. Howdy, folks. Uh, so tonight's focus is going to be on uh, converting fiction, your favorite fiction, into a sort of game setting uh, at your table. Um, and so... Uh, We've brought Grimm on because uh, he's most recently done a successful uh, Kickstarter for creating a whole source books on the world of gore. Um, and this is new to me. Gore is, is an old uh, fantasy setting. Uh, great many books. Apparently it's famous uh, with some people, but for anybody who's listened to the Geek Gab before knows, I'm not much of a reader. Uh, so, so that was a great introduction. Uh, <laughs> Uh, great introduction to me. Um, so can you tell us uh, a little bit more? Uh, I'd like to hear more about like the stuff that you've done and, and gore specifically. Uh, what, stuff I've done in general and then gore specifically? Okay. Um, so yeah, I've been working part-time for nearly 20 years, full-time for about 15. Um, I lost my job in the great dot-com crash of the year. Uh, early 2000s and nothing was coming along so i ended up just going into into writing games um first big thing i guess i, I did was me and my writing partner stephen mortimer wrote the munchkin's guide to power gaming that sparked off the whole munchkin phenomenon not that i get any money from from that unfortunately <laughs> um, i've written stuff for, for wizards uh, one of their Eberron source books for for third edition, and some stuff for monster manuals and so on. I was briefly line developer on SLA Industries, uh, which was Nightfall Games. Um, wrote Cannibal Sector One for them. Um, so you know, I've, I've been around and done bits and pieces here and there, but it's primarily my own my own business now, so publishing my own stuff. Um, as regards gore, I'd often thought that it would make for an interesting RPG. And if you go searching online, you'll find discussions going way, way back about turning it into an RPG. It's um, said that Dave Arneson was inspired in part by gore and things like some of the animals like tarns and so on show up in, in early D&D source books and different kinds of slaves and things for sale in early early D&D books as well, things like that. So, you know, it's got a long pedigree, but it's never had its own game. There was an attempt to do one that was a that was a D20 version, but that kind of fizzled. The property kind of seems to be cursed in a way. I mean, the films are terrible. There was an attempt to put out a, a comic that, that founded because of Canadian censorship laws. Um, <laughs> And uh, yeah, the the birthing process of the, of the game was was pretty difficult as as well. Um, and it's a it's a controversial series of books, which never helps but always attracts my my interest. 
so yeah i just took a took a punt on on asking for the license and uh the the author's agent agreed um and we were away wow that's really cool uh now there's a lot of things in there that that uh, that I want to unpack. Um, see, what I didn't really know that it was is a controversial book series. So I guess I've got two questions in mind. We'll get to the controversy later. Uh, since since I don't know any uh, enough about the books, what makes it such a great setting, uh, it, such an influence for RPGs? Um, that's that's tricky. I mean, you described it as fantasy, but really it's kind of set contemporaneously to to today, just on a, a different world. And it's always been set now when the books have been written, but they've been being written since the 60s and they're still being written today. So, you know, that that's one weird thing. I kind of tend to describe it as Barsoom meets Velikovsky. <laughs> Because um, it's got a lot of the kind of sword and planet tropes, especially in the early books that we're used to. Um, and lots of people are sort of really, really into the kind of pulp revival and or have been trying to be into a, a pulp revival in games. It's been a bit more difficult there for some time. And then at the same time, there's these kind of alien powers moving in the background. And there's more of a science fantasy element to it than a, than a pure fantasy element. There's no magic. There's technology and strange creatures and yeah another world so it's got kind of secrecy conspiracies sword and planet ancient aliens all kinds of other weirdness kind of put together in a, in a way that works but grounded in some and good world building and then sprinkled on top of that you have all the sexual connotations and controversial elements That sounds right up uh, Daddy Warpig's alley. And I don't mean the controversial <laughs> elements. He's sufficiently controversial on his own. But, <laughs> but we're big fans of the uh, the pulp revolution and, and what's going on. And the way it seems to sort of dovetail with the old school uh, revival that, uh, that sort of I've been looking into uh, lately. Where people are, you know, bringing in all sorts of old and, and old and new influences into their games and you know really making their games their own um yes yeah, it's, it's that's interesting i mean that's always the way dnd used to be you know you'd go from one player group to another and you'd be playing practically an entirely different game <laughs> you know it was all very much about customization and uh, and drawing on all kinds of different influences but pulp has had a hard time really taking off in in tabletop it's interesting you draw comparisons to the osr I, I guess i guess that's true there are there are pulpy elements there but your kind of pure pulp games have struggled a bit i mean there's spirit of the century i suppose which did quite well for fate there was hollow earth expedition more recently which is which has done quite well but there's nothing that's really taken off um in, in a pulp kind of style yeah, the closest one in my experience was, I would say, Savage Worlds. It made mm -hmm. as sort of a like a quick and dirty convention style, whatever genre you're playing in, you know, just wing it. Yeah. And they did a good. Um, so I've got it. I've got it right here next to me. In fact, they did a. A good uh, Solomon Kane source book for for Savage Worlds. That's, that's 
worth picking up if you can find a copy. Yeah, I think there is a lot of overlap. Uh, there's because in in uh, regular tabletop gaming, especially since I mean we're we're really talking about D and D, right? D and D has its own set of tropes, and uh, like at first glance, it's it's like this set of Tolkien-esque tropes. And then when you dig deeper, especially when you uh, when you start talking to crazy people like Jeffro, who and his Appendix N book and everything, and you see all the real influences, where so many of them come from that hmm. pulp era, and it's sort of it's, I mean to you know to steal a you know to steal a title from D and D, it's unearthed arcana. It's it's great. Yeah, it can really lead you down a, a rabbit hole of in, of interesting books and and other media that in this day and age you don't necessarily hear so much about so yeah it, it's it's definitely good for that so you also said that there are some controversial elements to the gore series can you can you paint in broad strokes what those are um okay in Something like Conan, when he rescues the priestess or whatever from from being sacrificed, you know the the, the meta, metaphorical camera turns away. That doesn't happen so so much in the Gore books. They're not at all explicit by the standards of today, but at the time they were kind of pushing the envelope, especially since they incorporate a lot of BDSM elements, and there are people who take the kind of Gurian cues and activities and so on, and, and bring them into their into their into their bondage play and so on, which which has led to you know various lurid head, headlines and so on. I mean, recently there was a scandal in the Drupal community, sort of open source software community, where one of the guys there was was outed as being a kind of real life Gurian, at least so far as his his sex life was concerned and that was a huge fuss and he was basically ousted and then the arguments and so on are, are, are still going on you know and there's been a couple of incidents of uh, sex cults <laughs> who base their behavior around it you know and because it's sexual it's it's more salacious to people um i guess i mean no one particularly bats an eyelid at someone saying that they're a jedi or doing up their living rooms like a set from star trek or something but because it involves sex there's you know it's it's there's a much more visceral reaction i suppose so yeah because it incorporates those elements and because within the setting there's both both an implicit and explicit idea that male domination of of, of society and of, of women and so on is natural not that there aren't strong female characters and so on in the books but because that's there it's often incorrectly in my opinion described as being misogynistic or you know male power fantasies or whatever not that i see anything wrong <laughs> wrong with that necessarily you know the point is it's it's fantasy but um you know yeah, it sounds, you know like, the, a, sounds the... like a double whammy there it, like uh, i mean not only do you have those those sexual elements that would they're going to you know naturally turn a lot of people off but then you've got the whole sjw angle where uh, railing against uh, perceived misogyny and such yeah i mean 
John Norman, the author, is in some ways a kind of early victim of that during this kind of previous wave of, of hyper-political correctness in the 90s. I mean, he couldn't get his books published anymore for quite, quite a few years, even though they were still incredibly popular. When he first started coming out with them, I, I guess it was against the backdrop of the, the sexual revolution and the more liberated sexual attitudes of the, of the 60s and 70s. Um, he even wrote a, a non-fiction book called Imaginative Sex, which was which was talking about this kind of stuff uh, as well, which is quite quite interesting. But even then, I mean, uh, I think Michael Moorcock famously said that it should his books should be relegated to the top shelf. <laughs> you know, so no no love lost there particularly. But yeah, then he couldn't get published in the nineties, and then as eBooks and so on came up the community that had grown up in the absence of his books being published online sort of picked up his books again and he picked up a publisher again. And yeah, so he's out, he's out there, but of course, any, any mention of his books, of his work, of the, any, any of that. And yeah, you, you, you do get swarmed a bit by the social justice types. Well, I, I can see that. I mean, where, where you look at all the other pulp works that sort of disappeared from our consciousness, um, it's hard to put your finger on the reason why. Like, why did they disappear? But the, with this one, you've got like a scapegoat. You can say, yeah, well, you know, he couldn't get published for a lot of reasons. But that takes us to today, where you were given the opportunity to actually do something with it. And on the game design side, it, it sounded like there's a great deal of world building and and uh, great characters and possibilities for adventure there that that you wanted to tap into as far as like a traditional tabletop game. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, the fact that you know, the, the fan community, the kind of online community had kept interest in, in his body of work going for, you know, the decade or more that he couldn't couldn't get published and and you know it, it wasn't being advertised or anything you could only really find anything to do with him online that showed to me that there was yeah a pretty big community that felt the same way that i did um i mean there was a big Korean community in the computer sort of it's not exactly a game um computer virtual world second life there was there was a huge community in there i i found as i started poking around that at its height had something like fifty thousand accounts as as Korean you know characters and so on in in the virtual worlds that they built in there and that was you know a, a time where the books weren't necessarily being published you know that this was this was already already happening so it definitely showed to me that there was this potential there um yeah, lots of people said you I couldn't or shouldn't do it as well. So that was a big impetus to do it. But yeah, the the world building is is fantastic. I mean, Norman himself, I think, is a philosophy professor, um, or was he must be retired now. Um, but he's also heavily interested in in sort of classical literature and civilizations and so on. So you can see a very heavy kind of Greco-Roman in influence on a lot of the writing on a lot of the world building, and that helps ground it and helps you suspend your disbelief a bit for the more fantastical elements. So um, even among other new wave authors, John Norman wasn't necessarily popular. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it wasn't particularly popular. His, his, um, his writing has been criticized a lot. It can be unwieldy, but it's still 
fun. I mean, people criticize Lovecraft's writing and he's you know, still massively popular, uh, though he has the advantage of being redeemed by being dead. <laughs> I think that helps when you have controversial views or are seen as having controversial views. Um, but yeah, he wasn't hugely popular at the time. I mean, apocryphally, he started writing the books after reading some Edgar Rice Burroughs and deciding that basically pff, anyone can do that. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know whether that's true or not, um, but that that's the story. I, I, but, I yeah, don't he mean, wasn't particularly well regarded. I don't mean popular among the uh, among people or audience. I mean, the other authors. Uh, you, you talked about Michael Moorcock in specific, but um, was he? Um, kind of frowned upon by the other new wave, even new wave authors, because the, the new wave, when it came about in the, you know, in the sixties was very much, you know, Harlan Ellison and dangerous visions and all those other authors were uh, very much about um, pushing the boundaries of violence and sexual material. That's, I mean, really that's the core of what the new wave was is taking science fiction and fantasy and then pushing the boundaries of explicit, uh, violence and and sexual material obviously you know by today's standards they wouldn't be um wouldn't be considered all that violent necessarily or all that sexually explicit but by the standards of the of the late 1960s or even middle 1960s they were pretty pretty out there um but it from what you've been saying about michael moorcock's views it sounds like that even among the other new wave authors that that uh, Mr. Norman was was somewhat controversial. Yeah, I think that even though what he was writing was kind of uh, at the edge, even even revolutionary on the sexual front, with his incorporation of sadomasochistic and um, domination and submission themes, I think the fact that he was writing in uh, an older pulp style probably turned off a lot of the new authors at the time who probably felt he was just a bit of a bit of a hack or whatever and i think because his views were seen as being so anti-feminist that won't have fitted with with that wing so i don't think he particularly fit in anywhere at the time he started writing i don't i don't think he fit into any particular movement because the ways he was looking forward were not the same ways that they were looking forward necessarily. And at the same time, he was looking back at a time people people were trying to do something new and, and revolutionary and, and different. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I don't think he particularly fit anywhere. So looking at these books, someone who's a fan of these books, um, I can very easily see people, and, and this happened with the, you know, as, as you pointed out with Barsoom and the other books, those spawned countless, inspired countless people who went on to be writers and, and uh, you know, astronomers and worked for NASA and engineers and all sorts of people uh, got into science and science fiction because of the Barsoom novels. Um, so I could see people who are fans of Norman writing, uh, you know, I, not necessarily pastiches, but writing works that were kind of inspired by him the same way he inspired Barsoom. I can see fans of his wanting to make movies or, you know, teleplays, audiobooks, whatever. What is it about these books that makes them apt for a tabletop role-playing game? 
the thing for me that makes them work for tabletop is that it's already a layered story and that the world is is so well put together i mean that's that's the one thing i don't think anyone can really fault norman on in that his vision of the world i mean over what 30 34 books you can't help but get a, you know get a strong vision of what the of what the world is and, and what it's like and that's that's important being able to place yourself in a world and then because it's divided into city states that are factionalized against each other there's room for plenty of intrigue so you've got that kind of level there's there's banditry and and so on you can deal with it at that level there's plenty of exotic animals and so on there's all kinds of different cultures there one of the key features of it is that a lot of the the cultures on gore are transplanted from earth so you'll find um, a native american culture that was basically been lifted out of america during um during the kind of colonial era um, and the expansion west and so on they've basically been lifted up and, and rescued by these interventionary aliens brought to gore dumped on a plains area and then have adapted there without being interfered with so you know you've got, you've got cultures like that everywhere and you've got these fantastical beasts and you've got all the intrigue and so on and the adventure between the cities and then behind all that you have this layer of intrigue between two warring alien powers operating you know behind layers of conspiracy and and, and secrecy and vying for control of that world and earth and the solar system so there's all this stuff going on in the background so you, you can play it at all kinds of different levels depending how you how you want to interpret it now i don't think we've mentioned it so far on the show and i haven't read the novels i have read about the novels. so if i if i make a misstatement please feel free to correct me gore itself the planet is a counter earth that is it, it's in the solar system on the opposite side of the sun from earth so we can never see it directly and can't uh, so nobody on Earth knows it's there. Am I am I wrong in that? That's my memory of it. You're you're ninety percent right. Yeah, um, okay. yeah. It it orbits on the, it, it, the exact opposite orbit of us. Um, it's it's got slightly less gravity. Um, the secretive aliens called the Priest Kings who control it um, use the sun to basically hide it from us. Um, and they have technological means as well, and they have gravity control. So it's implied that that planet was brought to our solar system from another solar system, just kind of inserted in at, at some point. Um, now, it's heavily implied in the books that there are forces on Earth that know about all of this. And um, one of the alien powers, it used to be both, uh, but one of the alien powers comes comes to Earth and takes resources and slaves and so on and returns them to Gore to uh, basically use them as resources in their battle to try and try and take it over. And it's heavily implied that various corporations and governments and so on are in on this and basically allow it for one reason or another. I mean, maybe there's a trade in technology or or, or something else going on, but it's heavily implied that there is huge corruption at the kind of higher echelons and, and deep state of various nations on earth that know what's going on. So um, Jerry Pornell has a, a two book series called Janissaries. And in it, uh, soldiers from earth are taken by aliens to another planet and, um, you know, set up to do things and they encounter other 
civilizations of earthlings who had been taken from previous eras. Um, it sounds like, it, and again, I'm, I'm uh, trying to glean from what you said in my memory of it, that uh, the setup of, of Gore itself is, is similar in that they have taken large populations of different civilizations and just kind of let them go on Gore. And that's how, you know, they take them to the other side of the sun and let them go. And that's how the planet gets, um, uh, got populated by cultures from our world. Yeah, yeah, that's pretty much right. Um, they are a bit more hands-on, these, these alien creatures, in that they lay down technology codes so you're not allowed to develop things like guns or, or computers or you get burned alive by mysterious rays from, from the sky. So uh, it's kept a more kind of uh, visceral sort, swords and bows sort of, sort of level. But technology in other areas has advanced, so there's basically immortality serums and various devices that do, that do various things. But but yeah, it's it's transplanted cultures. There's a, an Arabic style culture. There's Native American style culture. Uh, Greco-Roman cultures. Uh, there's ones that that aren't haven't been explored that much yet, but sound like medieval cultures, possibly whisked away during the, during the plague or something like that um yeah there's all sorts there's a in some of the more recent books there's a japanese culture on a on a far set of islands that's been introduced here's the ironic thing uh, about the conan novels um edgar rice burroughs created a um a forgotten history of earth and placed a bunch of you know different cultures on this in this forgotten history but what he really did was he structured some of them some of the pirates after you know um after classic caribbean age pirates and some of the other pirates after corsairs uh some of the cultures are full-on high renaissance medieval cultures and others are american indian inspired and others are cossacks and others are egyptian and afghani and on and on and on and so he did a similar thing with his world with the hyborian age world and yet he just basically had to hand wave all of it and everybody likes it because the Conan stories are awesome and they just, you know, they let it go. It's like, okay, well, that's what the Hyborian Age is. But it sounds like John Norman did a very, very similar thing in having a patchwork of cultures, but actually had a, a better explanation for it. And I also wonder if um, Steve Jackson Games, GURPS fantasy setting, uh, is set on a planet where there's something called the Bane Storm that whisks people from Earth to this other fantasy world. And so a lot of cultures from Earth have ended up there. I'm wondering if if Steve Jackson, when he was designing that world, that fantasy world, I wonder if he took inspiration from Gore. It's possible. You'd, I think you'd have a hard time getting him to admit it if he, if he did. <laughs> <laughs> I just I love the the world that uh, that you described. I, I'm glad to hear more about Gore because it's it's sort of a, a different twist on what a lot of other game systems try to do. They like to have like a generic game system where you know if you just buy these books, uh, you can do any sorts of adventures you want in them. 
uh, only they have like different worlds, multiple timelines, multiverse, that sort of thing. And in gore, it, it's it's more organic. It's it's more like the reason why you can have uh, you can play a cyberpunk adventure, you know, in in the world of gore, as well as you know a medieval sword and 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 technology adventure in gore is because they've they've all been transplanted to this planet, all these different cultures. Uh, and they sort of grew organically. So uh, it's sort of like a, a neat twist on the whole, uh, you can use this setting for whatever you want uh, perspective. Yeah, I wouldn't say you could go as far as a, as a cyberpunk culture, but you could use elements of that if you set the game on Earth amongst the alien conspiracies and so on there. I mean, you could have almost a kind of X-Files type game with, with some other themes and elements in it. But um, yeah, yeah there's, there's plenty of room for all these... That. Yeah, but there's plenty of room for all these different, you know, cultures from the past of Earth, and the world is big enough that if there's one that you feel is missing, you could always transplant it over. So uh, I think in the book I describe how um, it's likely that the if these priest kings are still bringing cultures to Gore, then they might start to target uh, some small Polynesian and other island cultures as those islands become threatened by erosion and so on, because that seems to be some of the times that they've intervened in the past, as, as with the Native Americans, is when populations and cultures are under threat. It's almost like Gore is their private zoo and the technology laws and everything are to try and keep humans in a, in a kind of state of nature there, uh, which is another theme of the theme of the books, I think. I, I wonder, um... It occurs to me that one of the ways that you could set up a an interesting campaign um, that might not, you know, a variant campaign not doesn't follow the plot of the books, is to borrow a page from Eric Flint's 1632, where uh, an American town from the modern world is transplanted back in time to 1632, and then the Americans have to deal with all the situations. Uh, of trying to fit in history there and, and being vastly outnumbered but still, you know, superior and having, you know, modern social ideas with all of these, uh, you know, 1600s cultures. It would be interesting to take an American population who had been kidnapped, like, you know, this uh, Midwestern town who had been kidnapped, um, 20,000 people, 50,000 people, and had their technology stripped and dropped on gore. And then the players, um, the characters they play at the beginning of the campaign are modern Americans in this, you know, medieval, uh, low-tech world. And that would give players both kind of a an introduction to the world without them having to know a whole lot about gore first. Uh, and it also might be, uh, they could raid books such as um, 1632 and also I believe David Drake had another series uh, about islands in the Sea of Fate. I may, I'm probably getting the name wrong, but another series about a, a fishing village off of uh, New England who got sent back in time to a uh, medieval fantasy world. So you could take inspiration from those series and put together a, a quite interesting campaign setting building on gore and all those other uh, elements yeah that would fit quite well i mean that's and doing that on a kind of smaller scale is kind of already already built into the 
into the world in that, like I say, people are in, enslaved or recruited by these alien conspiracies and brought from one world to another. So if you do have um, players who know absolutely nothing, I mean, you can start them off as gladiatorial slaves or or agents of one of these alien powers and have them have them brought into the whole whole thing that way so there's a kind of natural in um for people who who don't know the setting and so on. yeah i mean the more i hear about it the more it sounds like like the perfect setting for for your average sort of just throw it together rpg table uh where you don't want to be you know straight jacketed by the you know the tropes in D D or whatever the system you're using. Or, or dreaded continuity, as uh, Penny Arcade has it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously, it's... Um, I know people love the Forgotten Realms, and I'm not going to... Uh, I'm not going to trash the Forgotten Realms in and of themselves. They're not to my taste, but that's fine. People can love them. But what is really difficult with the Forgotten Realms is that there's so much material, so much uh, video games, uh, RPG material, obviously, novels, all the, on and on and on that are all considered canon and that all your players who are familiar with it expect it to be canon. And as a game master, there's just a hell of a lot of work. Uh, why would you want to necessarily keep up with all that? But if you start with, um, with gore and just take the opinion that, you know what, um, these things that we know about the world may or may not be true, and we're going to go on, and, and the only thing that's canon is what I say is canon at my table, and you don't have to memorize a huge number of facts. I don't have to memorize a huge number of facts or plots or whatever, but at the same time, we're going in the spirit of, you know, this world controlled by aliens. It's low technology because they deliberately keep it that way, and uh, there are all these cultures from earth you could make a you could take inspiration from gore and make a pretty compelling homebrew setting that is uh gore like without being an exact copy which is something that is almost impossible to do with forgotten realms yeah definitely um i mean the trouble with stuff like forgotten realms though is you know you get that one guy at the table who's a total wonk for, for the history <laughs> and the canon and calls you out on everything you get wrong um, and Gore, this is a, a, something you do run into with properties like Gore, um, and I ran into this with with SLA Industries as well. Is when there's a like a gap in publication, and fans have have taken up and made it their own. There's an enormous amount of fan buy-in and um, kind of rabid adherence to their own particular ideas about the setting and so on. So, you know, like I said before, there have been 34 books and, you know, there's stories and plots winding their way through all that. So there's room for the people who are really into the canon, but it doesn't make that much difference because the world's kind of returned to a, a semi-status quo. So long as you can pick up a few of the, of the main thrusts of what's been going on, like the two main city-states having basically ruined each other by going to war and so on, as long as you, you've got that, you're basically basically okay but if, if there's people that do want to be highly canonical and there are people who want to be absolutely by the book in the broader Korean community you know they're, they're, there's that for them too but I think most people would be willing to play reasonably fast and loose with it 
It's just fans can be difficult to deal with sometimes. <laughs> so this might be an easy question for uh, a veteran like you, but for, for the aspiring writers and, and game masters and just people who just want to run a, a nice game at their, at, with their friends, you've got this massive world with all these known properties, and it's, it sounds like a great setting for all kinds of adventures. You're trying to condense that into a rule book and or a source book for people to play in. Where do you start? How do you boil that down? Oh, that's not that easy a question. Um, a lot will depend on the property that you're talking about, or the, or the setting that you're talking about. Um, I think the best thing to do is to probably lay out the kind of broad strokes of, of themes and because you're talking about a, a role-playing game, what people will actually be doing. Um, and then once you've got that framework set up to then start start going into, into the detail and, and building on that. So if, if you're talking about gore, then you would say, you know, it's it's primarily a kind of swords and sandals game of, of, of intrigue and sort of human will um, against a, you know, a, a vicious natural world and, and various conspiracies, um, then you would, you know, talk about the kind of assumptions of the setting uh, like this transplanted world the transplanted cultures the male dominance theme which is inescapable um things like that 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 show how it's different from other other settings and then you can start getting down into into the nitty-gritty something i might when approaching a property like that one of the things you might begin to do is Understand the property so you know what people who are going to come to it would expect in the terms of play at the table. That is, what kind of adventures they would expect from it. And you don't have to follow that slavishly, but obviously you want to understand that pretty thoroughly. And then, if you're talking about zeroing in on an area to start with, pick areas of the world that are particularly conducive to those kinds of adventures or just role-playing adventuring in general. I mean, let's say you've got two societies in a world and one of which is rigid and dictatorial and people have very little choice about what they're going to do in life and, and they're kept in this guild and there's very little opportunities for people to just go out and randomly get involved in adventures. Or you have another area that's maybe a frontier area where there is a lot of you know, chaotic situations where people are encouraged or allowed to go out and do their own thing and can profit from it monetarily or in terms of gaining social position. Now, if you look at those two different societies, the second one is far more conducive to traditional role-playing adventuring. I'm not saying you couldn't run a campaign in the first one, but it would definitely be a uh, a highly unusual campaign that would tend to be for the tastes of a smaller group of people. And so if what you're doing is creating um, more adventuring friendly, you would want to start with at least detailing the second area. And then if you're going to expand it with a, with a source 
book or something, then go back to the first and have that be a place where it's assumed people can visit, but it's not going to be the primary area of adventuring. Uh, and that's why if you look at, I'll give an example of Shadowrun, started in Seattle because Seattle is a very friendly city to shadow running, whereas a place like Quebec is really, really hostile to the kinds of things that Shadowrunners have to do, or the Native American nations were really hostile to the Shadowrunners. And so those are places that you would go for a change of pace, but they weren't a core area to adventure in. Mm. Yeah, um, so the, the world in Gore is fairly stratified and socially constrictive so you know you've got free citizens free citizens and slaves the slaves don't have that much autonomy at all the free citizens are organized into castes and clans and and various things that kind of set their role sort of know, know your place and duty so my kind of standard conception for the game is that players will be something out at least slightly outside those norms so my my assumption for the adventure supplements that we've put out already is that they are at least one step removed or, or whatever but working for one of the one of the alien powers so that gives them more freedom to move around and, and do other things but there's other opportunities as well some of the cultures are more open and less stratified and, and move around more um, there's a pirate city called Port Car, which is probably one of the strongest cities in the, in the setting now. It's much more loose and open, more opportunities there. So, yeah, the the, the idea holds, but um, in terms of gore, it's more about who has the latitude to to do this, um, for sort of subculturally or within their role in society rather than a specific geographical location per se, but otherwise the, the analogy holds. So, so if, if I'm understanding you correctly in, in a traditional fantasy game, like dungeons and dragons, the players have a ton of latitude because they're far more powerful than everybody else. And they're usually operating outside of like civilized society, but a game in gore isn't necessarily about what you can do to resolve the conflict, but like, what are the consequences? How do you how do you how do you get at someone or a way to uh, resolve a conflict uh, without maybe drawing the attention of uh, the aliens or your uh, enemies or the local uh, powers or what have you? Is that accurate? Yeah, that, that's that's much more accurate. I mean, you might encounter wild beasts and, and so on, but by and large, the majority of any conflict is going to be with other, other people or other you know, intelligent beings, you know, schemers, um, rather than pure pure brute force. So you have to be a bit more intelligent and careful, and you're not really going to be doing a lot of dungeon crawling. Yeah, I was gonna, I was going to ask because. Uh... I hadn't yet got the feel for what type of game this would be. So, so when you set out to write it, did you? It sounds like a world where you could do some sort of dungeon crawling, but there's lots of different other types of adventures you can do. So, did you pick one type of, of game style and and stick with it when you did this? Yeah, the the assumed game style is one of, um, sort of cloak cloak and dagger and move and counter move. Um, so being involved in the kind of cons conspiracies and so on. Like well, one of the adventures, 
uh, spoiler alert, um, one of the adventures is set just outside a city called Thana. And Thana, in opposition to the rest of the world, used to be ruled by a matriarchy, a particularly cruel and nasty matriarchy. Um, so, like, no, no sex was allowed. The men were all just workers and were kind of kept away from the women. Pregnancies were handled by the cast of physicians. Um, any man who bucked the system uh, ended up being thrown to work in the silver mines or to fight in the amusements, which was a gladiatorial battle. Eventually, there was this big revolt that overthrew that and restored what, in the context of the, of the books, would be regarded as the natural order back to that city. Um, but as the basis for the adventure, took the idea that some of these women managed to stay free, some of them sort of escaped to estates and so on in the countryside and have been working in a, in a conspiracy to have a counter-revolution at some point. And so the, the players get caught, up in, get caught up in that. So that's kind of example of the way that, you know, drawing on the, on the source material, um, directing people towards a kind of conspiratorial um, sort of cloak and dagger style of play but within that that broader social context i mean that that adventure really brings a lot of the the themes of gore together slavery freedom position of free women in that society um you know gender relations in in that society and you know there's a few good fights as well things like banditry and and so on that, that's that's all involved as they get caught up in this in this conspiracy and are the ones who then have an opportunity to resolve it one way or another. You know, who who are they going to side with? Um, and it gives you a springboard to a, to a potential campaign. You know what that sounds like to me? It sounds like the way Vampire the Masquerade was meant to be played, which it never has been. Oh, yeah. and in my experience, Vampire the Masquerade just boils down to a superheroes game. Yeah, uh, angsty superheroes in trench coats. Yeah, and where all the superheroes yeah. eat babies. <laughs> yeah you can you can play it very political but um i mean if you, if you go back to the books it's kind of the, there's that going on so like the, the protagonist will get some kind of mysterious clue or message leading him to some kind of conspiracy and behind that conspiracy will be the um one of the alien powers and on his way there you know there's plenty of sword fights and uh riding giant flying birds and crossbowing people and having your way with voluptuous slave girls and so on. Yeah, it all, it all fits into the action. But in a lot of ways, they're kind of like um, detective novels, almost kind of kind of piecing together what's going on and un uncovering the whatever plot or scheme is behind is behind it all. So um, let me ask you a question about I'm, I'm assuming you create uh, you designed your own system for this game. Am I wrong? Um, I adapted the Open D6 system, okay. um, which just seemed just seemed almost tailor made to fit really with what I needed. Uh, Open D6, which is West End Games' system that was originally for Ghostbusters and then Star Wars, and then was uh, open source under uh, Eric Gibson's uh, ownership of West End Games. Yep. Dang, um, Encyclopedia Warpig over here. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the fact that it powered Star Wars uh, originally was one of the big reasons I chose it. Um, th there's been this big Korean community of like freeform role players online for years and years and years, and I kind of wanted to tap into that audience. 
But when it comes to pen and paper RPGs, a lot of them are total noobs. So um, the D6 system was probably one of the, the big ones besides D&D that got a lot of people into gaming. It's a very accessible, simple system. It uses six-sided dice that everyone can get hold of easily. Uh, it's got that kind of visceral feel of picking up a, a handful of dice and, and rolling it. Um, the way it uses templates for character creation fit perfectly with the idea of casts and so on in gore. Um, Star Wars is essentially a science fantasy setting. Gore is essentially a science fantasy setting. It was just perfect. I just had to make a, a few tweaks here and there to, to make it work exactly right. But it was, it was the right system to use. So... Um... Savage World uh, books, Savage World setting books, tend to have, um, tend to assume that you're going to use basically the entire Savage World's rules as were, except for, you know, there's five or six pages at the beginning with new edges, some new mechanics and things like that to, to ease, the, ease your uh, transition into this specific game world. Now, I'm... Again, I haven't read your book, and I apologize. I'm, I'm making a lot of assumptions here. I assume that you included, um, you know, the D6 system in your book and then also integrated your tweaks. But would you say that the amount of tweaks is roughly comparable to Savage Worlds, to a typical Savage Worlds book? Um, I have a few Savage Worlds books, but I don't particularly get on with Savage Worlds as a system, which is weird because I really liked Deadlands, which it's derived from. Um, so I can't speak particularly to, to Savage Worlds. I did put the whole system in the book, again, because I'm figuring you know, new players will be attracted to this game. Um, and I wanted everything to be there without them having to, having to faff around. And so I just incorporated the, the few changes uh, in, into the game. I mean, the changes are basically just a slight variation on how the dice rolling works so that you're... there's an extra dice that can do really well for you. Like if you roll a six, you keep rolling an add-on. So I've tweaked that slightly. So if you roll a one, it takes away and you can keep rolling and taking away. So that expands the possibility for great success or great failure uh, a bit more, which is a bit more in keeping with the kind of pulp adventure feel. And I changed the way the health system works because none of the standard health system mechanics really worked for me. I wanted to keep it simple for accessibility in terms of hit points, but I wanted to make it slightly more complicated to represent wounds and so on. So I kind of went with a half and half system, a bit a bit similar to fourth edition D and D, where you you know you drop below a certain amount of hit points and you take penalties, but it's simple and that's it. But those are really the only only tweaks I made. Um, how big of a player base did you have for playtesting? Uh, I ran scenarios at a couple of different conventions, once once a day, three days, and then I had a couple of, so that was six groups of six-ish people, so 30 or 30, 40 odd people. And then I had a couple of groups do some playtesting um, who I never met, you know, just random people <laughs> online, basically. So playtesting wasn't that important for this game because the D6 system has been around for ages and people have thrashed it around a lot. And, you know, we know what works and, and what doesn't. So it wasn't that essential. But I guess in total, 
maybe maybe 60 people got to got to play it before it was before it was ready and out well we are running down on time so i've got a i've got actually a question for both of you and then there's a couple of questions from the chat i want to get to uh the question i want to flip around the question i asked you earlier grim about taking this really big setting and turning it into a game uh what You've got your weekly game or your twice your bi-weekly game, and you've got some great new material that you want to incorporate. You want to you you already have a game style, in other words. Uh, so how do you adapt just a whatever piece of fiction that you've been reading? Maybe it's a TV show you saw or whatever. How do you ad easily adapt that to your weekly game? Mm, there's oh, way too many factors to give to give a definitive answer on that. I mean, if you've got a, a game that hops around and travels a lot anyway, then it's relatively easy to to drop something in. You can just have them stumble across something or enter a particular area that's suited to that idea. Um, I find the best thing to do with that kind of inspiration is to take not just one thing that you've read or one thing that you've seen, but take a couple of things and then kind of wedge them together into a into a frankenstein monster and that way even though you're ripping off two things nobody can tell because it seems like something new um that really kind of minimizes the the risk of one of your players having seen or read the same thing and figuring out what you what you've nicked your ideas from um if you're not traveling around it can be more difficult because then you have to make the the plot come to them somehow um, and usually when you're taking an idea from a book or a film or a TV show or something, you know, in the process of, of setting up that world or setting up that scenario, that's effectively traveling within that narrative to somewhere new. So it, it, it's, it's, uh, it's difficult. What I would tend to do myself is to just note down the ideas and then spring them on people when it fits rather than trying to wedge them in that way you get a more kind of organic game growth and you've got a stockpile of ideas set aside for when you run dry so so it sounds like you'd you'd break it down into different parts that you could use like you wouldn't take it as a whole or anything like i want to run this story you'd say oh i liked this part i liked this part i liked this about it and then you fit those pieces in where you can yeah yeah, or, may, or maybe the story structure or the twist or something like that. Yeah, and just um, take take the bits that you like and then stitch them together into some unholy crawling creation later on. What's your advice, Daddy Warpig? Um, I I would uh, well, let's let's go back to D and D when Gary Gygax was developing D and D. He stole bits and pieces from pretty much everywhere that ended up in Appendix N. So if you look at the Jack Vance Dying Earth series, he stole Iron Stones and also their system for naming spells he borrowed, uh, and their system for naming magic items. Those were kind of templates that he borrowed from that. When you're looking at a fictional work, you have one of two choices. You can either try and make a whole campaign around it, so if you really, really love Supernatural, the TV show Supernatural, you can make a whole campaign about playing monster hunters in the Supernatural universe, and that way you just take everything. Or you need to figure out which pieces of it you actually really like. What is it you really, really love about this specific property and 
bring it into your worlds. Do you really, really like an NPC? Do you really, really find, you know, Spike or Crowley uh, really, really interesting? And so pull them out, stack them up for the system and setting you're using, being willing to freely transliterate them so you don't have to have an exact copy if you don't want it, and then go with those specific uh, characters. Um, or if it's a, you know, some kind of spell, some kind of situation. Let's say you really, really love uh, the Diablo universe's uh, afterlife, where you have heaven and hell and this vast battleground between them. You can take that one element and bring it into your game world and use it as your afterlife and not worry about the rest of the game. It isn't, unless you're specifically making an entire game based around a property like Gore, you just want to take the bits that you feel especially excited about that you think are cool, identify those and use them you know, in the best way that you can see you really don't want to try and take absolutely everything because I guarantee you there are going to be pieces that either you don't like or that you may like but will not fit in with some other campaign. Um, you know, so yeah, I, I, I agree with uh, I agree with uh, you know Grimm's assessment. And if you're talking about creating an original campaign world, the the one suggestion he started with is take two things that are very very different and meld them together to get a third element and that way no one knows what you're ripping off so you can go back and say all right well i want to take the historical situation of the vietnam war but i want to set it in um iron age europe i'm not sure how that would work but you know iron age europe with shamanic magic that you've got from some novels you've been reading okay so you've taken two different situations and it's not going to seem like anything else so people aren't going to know that you you know you ripped off um any given vietnam war you ripped off the pl platoon or you ripped off saving private ryan or whatever they won't know where uh where your ideas came from and so they will seem absolutely original Brandon Sanderson and the other people in the Writing Excuses podcast talked about this quite a lot several years ago. I, I have no idea which episode, though. <laughs> well, let me get to the chat. Uh, we had a couple of questions earlier that I, I saved for the end. Todd Everhart has some more businessy questions, I, I'd say. He's asking, is anyone trying short stories uh, or novels, turning them into uh, little adventure modules, uh, and are they? Is anybody using those adventure modules to promote the stories, or vice versa? I, uh, it's it's been done in the past, hasn't it? Weiss and Hickman had um, a couple of novels that had like an RPG in the back. The Dark Sword uh, was, trilogy. Was that them? The Dark Sword trilogy, yes. Yeah, so that's been tried. Um, New Low Games do sort of um, very old comics that are now essentially lapsed or uh, or public domain heroes, and they do a, they do a series of things that basically present the comic and a game along with it. That's um, massively undervalued. I think more more people should look at that. So the answer is yes, but not many people, <laughs> I guess. Um. P. Alexander, the editor of Cursova magazine, 
I believe is uh, he's doing something with what they call one-page dungeons or one-page adventures and some of the stories in his magazine, but my memory is really, really fuzzy on the discussion because I wasn't paying real direct attention to it. I was reading through it as I was getting to some other point. So if I've completely misconstrued his intentions, I apologize. But I remember him and Jeffro and some other Pulp Revolution people talking about it. it the, the point they made is your ideal pulp story should be able to serve as a template for an adventure um, without much you know, adaptation at all, especially with OD&D, you just stat up the monsters and go. Um, you shouldn't have to do a whole lot of, uh, of game design work. You should be able to just write it up as, as conversion notes and then run with it. Um, yeah, it's, it's um, funny, actually. I've noticed over the years that a lot of the best game sessions that I've run have been partially ripped off from kind of straight-to-video bad science fiction and horror <laughs> films. <laughs> Which is kind of yeah the fil film version of pulps in a way I suppose you know they make for terrible films but they make for very good games because those kinds of movies very often have some core idea that's actually really really neat it's a really neat idea and they just happen to deliver it badly or didn't have the budget or didn't have the skills to do it well um, but you can still take that neat idea and do something with it if not in a movie you know, at your own home table. It's a very rare bad end up movie. Superior to the film. Yeah. It's a very rare bad movie that doesn't have at least something in it that's really kind of cool and, and stealable. Which is funny because in my experience, uh, you know, watching people's games are not interesting at all, but at the same time, the, the stories and, and the scenes that they create in those settings are often more entertaining uh when you're in them than watching any movie. I guess I'm just preaching to the choir here. That's why we love these RPGs. <laughs> Definitely. If, if, if we're getting towards the end, I do want to uh, point out something real quick. One of the people in the Simon Hogwin in the uh, chat pointed out that the book I was trying to remember was Islands in the Sea of Time by S.M. Sterling. Um, Village was a whole island of Nantucket, which was set back in time to the Bronze Age. So I got... I got several details wrong, but I, I, I <laughs> encyclopedia status revoked. <laughs> yeah, I was in the general vicinity. You, you demoted to bluffers guide. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. It's, it's been a little over an hour. It has been a great chat. Uh, I'll, I'd like to give you guys uh, the last word here. Uh, anything you want to say, daddy Warpig? Um, lots of things I want to say, but I can't say at this point in time, so we'll see what's happening in three or four or six months. Fantastic. I'm really looking forward to hearing that. Uh, and Grim, I know I mentioned that you've been a writer for a long time. Uh, whatever you have to say, uh, if you want to plug your uh, links and things, I've already got the link to your WordPress account on the notes. Anything you want to give a shout out to, we'll also put in the notes for everybody who's uh, watching this later on YouTube. Uh, well, um, sub to my YouTube channel as well. Um, buy Gore, buy the rest of my books. I'll give you links. Well, yeah, link to my blog, and from there you can find most most things that I do. Um, and I'm still crowdfunding a sort of history of Gamergate book. Um, it's funded, so you're going to get something. I've I've started writing it, but uh, if anyone wants to back that or get in early for a for a cheap copy, 
um, when it's when it's finished, you can you can do that still. Those are the main things I'm doing at the moment. Oh, that, that's fantastic. And it was a pleasure having you on. Uh, I know that it's really late for you uh, <laughs> over there across the pond, and, but it's been a pleasure. Anytime. Fantastic. Well, uh, this has been Geek Gab Game Night for Thursday, May 15, 27. Uh, great thanks to my two guests, uh, Daddy Warpig and Grim. Uh, if you want to listen to us or catch us later or check out all our other episodes, you can find us at youtube.com slash geekgab. Audio has been uploaded to SoundCloud and iTunes and just about everywhere else where you can get free podcasts. You just have to search for Geek Gab. Uh, that's it for tonight. Have a good night, everybody, and game on.